your message. I'm so sorry. Thanks. I just keep trying to tell myself he's in a better place, you know? Hey, you know, it's all right to feel sad, but the pain goes away. Yeah. I just wish there was a way to make it go away faster. I wish it would too, bro. I wish it would too. Every time the phone rings, I keep thinking it's gonna be him, you know? And, and I remember. It's okay, let it out. This is look like such an idiot. Why? Because you care about something and you're not afraid to show it? That's not an idiot. That's a hero. What I do deserve you. You treated me like a friend. I don't know what to say. Sometimes you don't need to say anything. Good times and bad. Yes. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, I am Pastor Mike, and I want to thank SNL for providing us an intro video uh, that illustrates this fact that alcohol is so prevalent in our society that any time you remove alcohol from a scene like the one we just uh, showed and, and substitute something else, it seems ludicrous, right? And uh, uh, aren't you glad I didn't say let us pray, okay? <laughs> I do want to welcome you to Overlake Christian Church this morning. We are in the middle of a Hot Topics series. Uh, last week we talked about pornography, today alcohol, next week cohabitation. We're just racking up the hits around here, and we're very excited about what God is doing. Uh, if you want to grab your notes out of your bulletin, you're welcome to do that. Today's message, uh, I, I don't know if it's officially rated M, although all of the things that we're going to be talking about are uh, alcohol-related things, all the verses, everything we talk about about in terms of Jesus. And in fact, how we want to go after this issue is we want to go after Jesus. I recognize that in any controversial issue, people land on all sides of the spectrum. The enemy would seek to use those as issues that would divide. Jesus is who we focus on, and it's by focusing on Jesus that we are united. Okay, so that's what we're going to go after today, alcohol and Jesus. I want to begin with just a little bit of... Um, Church history, a little bit of sort of perspective over the last several thousand years. The church traditionally has been open to alcohol use, uh, and I think it's fairly safe to say that the church in America today has tended towards a prohibitive view or restrictive view of alcohol. But it is interesting to note that uh, in, uh, say, the Middle Ages, when a young Christian woman was to be married in Europe, all of her Christian friends who would attend church with her, they would get together and they would brew an ale. It was called bride's ale. And in fact, that's where we get the word bridal. Okay? They would have a shower, a bridal shower. Are you following me? This was Christians in the, in the church who would go after this. We all know that it was the monks who perfected the lagering process for beer. We know it was those delightful monks who came up with this idea of champagne. 
Many of you might know this, that John Calvin, who is a hero of the Protestant movement, uh, ministering out of Geneva, Switzerland, in his pastoral package, yearly he would receive a certain sum of money and a certain amount of educational resources, books and whatnot, and then in his contract was also the provision for 250 gallons of wine per year. That would be like me receiving a salary, receiving a couple of conferences a year, and a hundred kegs of Red Hook beer. Like, that's just, it's, a, we, it's hard for us to get our mind around that kind of an, a society or that kind of an equation. But just understand that the church traditionally has been rather open to alcohol throughout Europe, and etc. And today, it is simply not. It's much more restrictive. So the point that I want to go after today, and, and the challenge of going after a message entitled Alcohol and Jesus, is that we want to land biblically, and we want to really bring the heart of Jesus into the discussion. When I was growing up, my parents uh, took me to a church occasionally that was very legalistic. And the, uh, I remember hearing a message where the preacher would say, in the Bible, when it says the word wine, it doesn't mean wine. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what does it mean? Pony? Table? Like, what? Friends, when you read the Bible and it says wine, it means wine. When it says sin, it means sin. When it says love, it means love. When it says grace, it means grace. You can trust the Bible because God knows what he's talking about. Now, there are many different sort of phrases around wine. For example, mixed wine is one of the phrases that's used. That doesn't mean mixed with water or a sort of cut to dilute uh, in fact, the Bible does refer in the book of Isaiah to water that's cu- or wine that's cut with water, and God is angry about it. It's a form of dishonesty. Uh, mixed wine refers to wine that's either mixed with spices to bring out the flavor, or wine that's mixed with fruits, or wines, different wine strains that are blended together. That's what mixed wine means. Uh, it, it simply does not refer to wine cut with water. Wine also does not refer to grape juice. Now, the reason why we are absolutely clear about this is because if you look at Numbers chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, in the same passage of Scripture, it refers to wine, other alcoholic drinks, vinegar, and grape juice. All of the different sorts of uh, beverages created from the vine. Friends, God knows the difference between grape juice and wine. When he says wine, he means wine. But the challenge is, where do we land uh, as sort of a whole, theologically, where do we land on the position of alcohol? Well, I want to begin where there is incredible uh, unanimity here. And that is, the first point on your outline is, we are called to live sober. Lives of sobriety, lives that are sober, all followers of Jesus agree that to get drunk is a sin. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, uh, don't get drunk. It says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are called to live uh, clear-minded Lives that are focused and centered upon Jesus Christ. We're called to be filled with him, to be filled with his 
Holy Spirit, his passion, his drive for the kind of life that he calls us to, which includes compassion and justice and and abundance of life, kind of this life that is truly life. All of that we are called to, and it doesn't. Uh, it's impossible for us if we're filled uh, lethargically and uh, you know in a stupor. We need to be clear-minded. So our challenge is to live sober. In the Old Testament, priests were allowed to consume alcohol, but not while they were performing sacrifices or services unto the Lord. It was a sin while they were ministering. Proverbs says this, It is not for kings to guzzle wine. Rulers should not crave alcohol, for if they drink, they may forget the law and not give justice to the oppressed. So for kings, for rulers, for leaders, for judges... I would even say for parents, certainly in the scripture we see for pastors and elders, it is not okay to drink on the job. It's not okay to show up drunk. You, you come to the church and you want to do some couples counseling and the guy who's counseling you can't even sit up in his chair straight. That's not a good scene, okay? So we can all agree that drunkenness is not a part of God's best for us. It's not a part of his plan. Paul goes on to say that drunkenness as a habitual lifestyle, it is, it is a really big deal. It's in danger of costing us eternity. And he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. He's including a long line of those who live habitual, sinful lives, and he includes thieves or greedy people, drunkards, or are abusive, uh, or those who cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you see, in a passage like this one, we see that drunkenness is a big deal, that it can become an eternal issue because it can become idolatry. And what I mean by that is alcohol, in this context, can become a a kind of personal savior, So that someone would turn to alcohol in times of joy or in times of pain, in times of courage or strength or for perspective or peace. All of those things, by the way, that Jesus wants to provide for us in a holy and a righteous way. So you see, if ever it gets to that place, then suddenly we have completely gone off of what God's best is for us. The Bible talks about all sorts of sins that are associated with drunkenness, including going all the way back to the book of Genesis, incest, violence, adultery, mockery, debauchery, poverty, and the indignity of vomiting up that which you've just consumed. Now, I want to tell you, Halloween is right around the corner, and we've seen some photos recently gone around about how you must be careful about how much alcohol your pumpkins ingest. <laughs> people do extreme things when they're drunk. Some people call this joining a fraternity, right? Alcohol can bring staggering madness, hallucinations, loudness. I don't know if you've ever been to an Italian family reunion, but everybody's talking just a little loud, and that's how it is if you're at a party where everyone's drinking. It's just, it's just loud, you know. Am I talking loud? Yes, you are. You're drunk, and it's not that fun. 
some people get giddy. Everything is funny to a person with self-induced stupidity. Uh, some people get sleepy. They drink. They fall asleep. They sleep all day long. Other people call this college. Uh, some are lazy, some people brawl, some are prone to sexual escapades. Uh, alcohol can cause in some depression, which is so ironic because many times people drink because they're depressed, but the alcohol then causes them to be additionally depressed, pushing them deeper. Some people drink and stay up all night. The point is simply this, life gets in a very real mess very quickly when sobriety is not the road that we are walking. And the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29 and following. Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who's always fighting? Who's always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It is the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. So friends, this is the biblical stance on drunkenness. The call from God to us, Jesus himself, urging us to live lives of sobriety, of clear-mindedness. That is the biblical stance on intoxication. But what is, I want to take it one step further, what is the biblical stance on alcohol consumption in general? And I put a couple of different viewpoints on your outline. The first, is it, legalistic prohibition. Is that what the biblical stance is? And I'm going to argue that prohibition, in other words, uh, just legislating across the board that nobody should drink anytime, any place, that no matter what faith tradition you are, it should be illegal, end of story. I'm going to argue that that is unsustainable from a biblical perspective. That prohibition wrongly teaches that all alcohol is sinful, that all consumption is wrong, and would try to prohibit everyone from drinking, whether they're Christians or no. That has an, it's a skewed view of God and the gifts that he gives. And what I'm trying to say is that the Bible tells us that it is God who gives all good gifts. Specifically, pointing you to Psalm 104, verse 14, says, Uh, Again, ascribing to the Lord, you cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad. Some of your translations say, wine that gladdens the heart, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. In other words, what this passage is saying is it is God who gives these good gifts to man. They're a part of his generosity and his graciousness to humanity. And he's just listing those things there. Even in this passage, wine that gladdens the heart. But Mike, you might argue, you push back, but Mike, God isn't the one making the wine. God doesn't make wine. And I would argue, ah, but he does. You see, John chapter 2, you flip over to the New Testament, and you see Jesus, as he enters into his public ministry, his very first act publicly is this miracle where Jesus transforms water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana. It's God making wine. And here's what he does, and I just love it. He takes these huge ceremonial jars used for ceremonial cleansing, and he has them as as the vehicles for how he's going to produce wine. 
It would be the equivalent of us taking the baptistry up there, filling it with grapes, and let's have a big old stomping party. I mean, that is, it's radical what Jesus did in that moment. And estimates are that Jesus made, in that instance, between 100 and 180 gallons of wine. So it wasn't like a little deal, you know, oh, here's a little aperitif for the host, you know, like, like this is a big deal. Everyone was a party to this miracle, and Jesus then, if he's going to be our model, he needs to be the one that we look at and wrestle with in this issue. Jesus, of course, drank wine. In Matthew 11, we see Jesus, once again, going after the religious spirit of the day. He's in an argument with some of the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders, and he's basically saying to them, hey, what's wrong with you guys? You're just never satisfied, are you? First John the Baptist comes, and as a part of his ministry to repentance and a focus on God and a right relationship with God, he comes and he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink, and you say he has a demon, and then I come, and I'm, I'm preaching the exact same message, but I do eat and I drink, and you say, oh, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard. You guys are just never satisfied, are you? I put that verse on your outline. It's Matthew 11, verse 19. Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, but wisdom is shown to be right by its results. The religious leaders had a problem with Jesus. They, they really didn't understand who he was, what he was about, and, and all they knew is that people in general didn't like them, that people weren't identifying with them, they, didn't, they weren't drawn to the, these religious leaders with their legalism, their systems of legality all firmly in place, and they look at Jesus and they say, well, how come everybody loves Jesus? I mean, how come he's number one on the, the list of must be invited to my party? I mean, he's getting invited to all the good parties. And you look, and he's there, and he's eating buffalo wings. He's got a pint of Guinness in one hand. He's telling knock-knock jokes to prostitutes. Like, everybody's around him, loving him. He seems to love them. And Jesus is saying, you know, your problem is God doesn't look like you think he should look. Your problem is that you don't understand the heart of God. Jesus, of course, drank. And the prohibitionist position says that God is wrong for making alcohol, and he's wrong, Jesus is wrong, for touching it, for making it, and for drinking it. And that's why the biblical position uh, cannot be prohibition unilaterally. My challenge for us is that we are biblical. Did Jesus drink? Yes, he did. I've actually heard some people argue, yeah, Jesus drank, but maybe he shouldn't have. <laughs> Can you just for a moment think of the arrogance that it takes to say that? Who are you to say what Jesus shouldn't have done, right? I mean, that puts you in a position, this is a precarious position to be holier than Jesus, okay? So that is an unsustainable position biblically. Prohibitionist isn't a viewpoint that can be sustained biblically, certainly not when you bring Jesus Christ into the discussion. And that's what this whole series is about, is bringing Jesus right into the middle of the discussion. So um, prohibition, that's, that's not the biblical model. So the second question on your outline, so is mandatory abstention the view the church should take? 
In other words, okay, it's not a sin just to consume alcohol, but we should still teach every Christian should abstain completely. And this is sort of one step better than the prohibitionist stance, but it's not yet where God lands this thing. And I heard a great message from a pastor friend of mine on this topic. And he points out this verse in Hosea. Chapter 2, verse 8. This is God's perspective of a God who graciously gives gifts to this woman in particular. And this woman, instead of giving God the glory for all the gifts that he gives, instead she turns and she worships a false God with the very gifts that he gives. It says this in Hosea. This is God speaking. She doesn't realize that it was I who gave her everything she has, the grain the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold, but she gave all my gifts to Baal, the false god Baal. And so just understand what's going on here. God gave them food, he gave them drink, he gave them wealth, and they used it for sin. It's an ancient paradigm. Now, I want to just ask a couple of questions. Did God abstain from giving these gifts even though he knew they were going to be abused? No. No, he kept giving these gifts. Let me ask you a question. Has God ever given you a gift that you have abused? Well, he gave you a tongue. Have you ever said anything that you shouldn't have said? He gave you a mind. Have you ever thought anything you shouldn't have thought? He's given you hands. Have you ever touched anything you shouldn't have touched? Uh, He gave you a mouth. Have you ever eaten anything you shouldn't have eaten? He's given you money. Have you ever spent it on anything you shouldn't have spent it on? A better question to ask is, has God ever given a gift that hasn't been abused? Friends, every single gift that God has given, in some way or another, Satan has figured out how to show us how to abuse it and misuse it and manipulate it and twist it. I would argue that every gift God has ever given has been used to sin against God, which means that we cannot abstain from a gift simply because it's been misused. The holy perspective or the better perspective is to figure out how to use it appropriately. How to use the gifts God gives us to bring glory and honor to him. Over the last four years, people have said to me, hey, Mike, you shouldn't allow people in your church to drink. Well, why? Well, because people will stumble with alcohol. Okay, I I understand that. You know what else causes people to stumble? Food, right? Uh, Should we ban eating? Is that that how it goes? That, That some people are gluttons, so let's outlaw food. Some people uh, speed in their car, so let's outlaw driving. Some people curse, so let's outlaw talking. That's actually not a bad idea. Uh, (laughs) Friends, that line of rationale, it it is not, it's it's not right thinking, it's not biblical, and it's not Christ-centered. See, we have to keep coming back to Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, you say, uh, Jesus he drank. Yeah, what was the society in which he chose to drink alcohol? Well, were there anyone, was there anyone present who abused alcohol when Jesus was alive? Certainly. I mean, when the Bible says, don't be a drunkard, was there a big question mark? Like, what's a drunkard? That doesn't compute. I don't get it. 
No, they understood what it meant uh, to be a drunkard or what it meant to, to be intoxicated because they had seen, you know, sort of examples all around them. And Jesus, he did not choose to abstain from alcohol in that context. Instead, he chose to show us holiness in the middle of consuming alcohol, in the middle of a broken context. Friends, God is the one who makes good things. And there are people always who either don't love God or who don't follow God's plan, who twist and manipulate and corrupt good gifts that God has given. But God does not create evil. Satan is the one who takes the good gifts God has given and twists them into something ugly and evil and corrosive. Look at this verse from Titus, chapter 1, verse 15. It says, everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. To the one who is pure, all things are pure. The question then is, is the person participating in this event, is is this person pure? I'll just give you one example. If you're married, then monogamous sex with your spouse is pure. Now, since some people misuse sex, should all Christians abstain forever? Oh, dear God, no. 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 No, so that's where the mandatory abstention view fails because it concludes that if something is used by someone for something bad, then we must abstain from it. And that's a faulty kind of logic. See, God is the one who gives all good gifts. And my final example with this view is, friends, even the Bible has been misused over the years. And even the Bible has been twisted to manipulate and to corrupt and control. So, should we abstain from the Bible? Of course not. No, rather what we do is we recognize why God has given us his word, why he has revealed to us his his will. It's because he loves us. And so we seek then to know and to understand his word and to identify his will and incorporate it into our lives, we use the word appropriately when we allow it to teach and to guide and to correct, to straighten us out and to allow us to live the life that God created us and called us to live, okay? So is it, is it this official stance biblically that we should forever abstain from alcohol or that all Christians should always abstain? No, that's not a biblically authenticated position. However, and I want to say this so that you absolutely don't misunderstand me. Is it okay to personally abstain from alcohol as a matter of conscience? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that's where we're going to land this thing. Brings us to uh, the recognition simply of this, that Jesus wasn't being unwise by touching, making, and drinking alcohol that Jesus is the one that doesn't demand us to create a legalistic kind of a framework. And I would argue that our legalistic rules and regulations fail to bring us to the people of the Spirit, the people of the relationship with Jesus that he intends for us to be. And, And this really does bring us to our last point. This is the challenge, I think, then, biblically, is that we are, as God's people, followers of Jesus, to embrace wisdom in moderation or a moderate approach. Biblical followers of Jesus know, agree, and uphold that drunkenness is a sin. 
But we also see in Scripture that wine can be indicated as a blessing. For example, Jesus made it at a wedding. The clearest example of this is that Jesus uses wine in the context of communion. He uses it to seal this new covenant that we have with him. And he says, because he knows he's going to be stretched out on a cross to take away the sins of the world, your sins and my sins, he's going to get nailed to this cross, his body's going to be broken, and as a part of that covenant, he breaks the bread. And he says, every time you break bread and you eat of this bread, remember me, remember my love for you, remember what I'm doing for you, I'm saving you, I'm cleansing you, I'm loving you. And in the same way, what does he take? the wine. And he uses wine, knowing its potency, knowing its power. He takes wine and he says in the same way, this wine represents my blood, which is poured out for you. And so every time you take this, every time you participate in this holy act, remember me. Okay? That's Jesus. That's bringing Jesus right into the center of this discussion. Other places in Scripture refer to wine. For example, Proverbs 31.6 refers to it medicinally. We see in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul references it as a medicinal in its usage. Proverbs 3.9 and 10 refer to new wine as a symbol of God's blessing. Ecclesiastes 5.18, we see that eating and drinking wine with a joyful heart, this is a gift from God. And so God gives all things to be enjoyed. In fact, if you would read through the book of Galatians, what you would see is a word that comes up again and again and again. This is why Christ died on the cross for us. It's the word freedom. For example, Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So don't allow yourselves to slip back into a framework of bondage or slavery. Christ has called us to be free, to live free. And certainly when it comes to this issue of alcohol, we are free. Free to choose. Do I consume alcohol occasionally or do I choose to abstain? The freedom is given by Christ himself. Now, I just want to be very clear. Is it okay then for a group of people, a group of Christians to get together and to say, hey, we know it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, but we see that alcohol can cause problems, so let's just make a rule that no Christian should drink any time. Is that okay for some people to get together to create a man-made rule that takes away my freedom? No, it's not okay. The Bible does not back that kind of activity. However, is it okay for me, who is free in Christ, knowing the kind of brokenness that alcohol can cause in the world, is it okay for me to lay down my freedoms from time to time? To, to give up my freedoms from time to time because I care for someone and I love someone and I don't want to be a stumbling block for that person. Is that okay for me to lay down my freedoms? Absolutely. So friends, if, if, I'm, if I'm in a context and I, I know that someone struggles with alcohol or is a recovering alcoholic, is it appropriate for me to lay down my freedoms and to not drink in their presence? Or Yes. In fact, I would tell you that's just called kindness. That's just called compassion, right? And the Bible does talk about that. When God makes us free in Christ, we should be willing to lay down our freedoms because we love people and because we want what's best for them. In Romans chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, each of us will give a personal account to God. 
So let's stop condemning each other. In other words, let's not allow this to be an issue that divides. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. So we must not look down on one another in this issue. We must, uh, we must follow our conscience. And we must go after what it is that Jesus is allowing us to do in this issue. Uh, we keep reading in Romans 14, 20. It says, don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it's wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not, uh, not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. A couple of lines you might want to underline in that passage. The first is, keep it between yourself and God. That's just one more recognition that when we walk this journey with Jesus, that it is an individual journey. And that God has called some of us uh, to freedom and allowing uh, for the enjoyment of alcohol in a safe and a sober way. Uh, for others, they don't have that same uh, freedom. But whatever, wherever you land, like this should not be a dividing issue. This is between you and Jesus. And so we walk in love, right, knowing that we're not going to tear one another apart. I love how the passage starts. Don't let this issue tear apart the work of God. But there's another phrase that you need to circle, and that is, it's wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. You could just circle that phrase. In the passage above it, it's decide not to cause another believer to stumble. And so you can circle that as well. We need to clarify that issue. What does it mean to cause a brother or sister to stumble? It doesn't mean uh, it's wrong to disagree with a person on this issue. It doesn't mean it's, 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 you know, if somebody else is annoyed that you hold this position or, or they're annoyed that you hold this position, uh, that's not what it means. It means literally to entice another to sin. So if you're having a, uh, if you're having a meal and you know that the person sitting across the table from you is a recovering alcoholic and you go ahead and pour them a glass of wine, and you just, you know, kind of hold it under their nose. Hey, <laughs> just a look. Ooh, a good nose. Mm. Uh, you know, that, you're, you're enticing them to stumble. You're, you're, you're providing a stumbling block for them. And we, and we are not to do that. Again, this is an opportunity for us to lay down our freedoms in Christ. And we choose then to abstain or we choose to be wise in that context. Why? Because we love that person. And we care for that person. We want God's best for that person. And that is the challenge. And friends, I would again tell you, that's called kindness. That's called compassion. I heard this example this week, and I don't know if it resonates or not, but uh, let's say that I'm in a, uh, we're having dinner together at my home, and, and it's with a, a man who is recently a widower. And let's say that I know this man's journey. He's been honest with me, and so I know that right now he is missing his wife dearly. And he's especially prone right now to sexual sin and uh, longing especially for the touch of his wife. 
And in the midst of that dinner, is it okay for me to lay down my freedom and to not, be, uh, to not show signs of public affection with my wife and to limit how she shows her affection for me? Is it, is it absolutely okay for me to be sensitive to him and to not uh, be affectionate with my wife in that moment? Of course. Yeah, again, that's called compassion for my brother. But does that mean that I'm never affectionate with my wife again? No, no, friends, it does not. Just understand that what we want to do is we want to bring Jesus right into the center of this thing, honestly loving our brother and sister, honestly caring for one another. That's called kindness. That's called compassion. That's called graciousness as we journey with Jesus together. Now, there are a few givens, and I want to make sure that I'm really clear about this, too, as I, as I draw this discussion to a close. In Romans, we see a, a few things. Number one, we see drunkenness is a sin, so we land there. Number two, we see that we're called to obey the governing authorities of the land, which means that in America, you can't drink if you're under 21. you got to submit to that. So there's no wiggle room there. That's the law. Second thing we see in terms of the law is you can't drive when your blood alcohol level is 0.08 or whatever the deal is because that's what society has determined, so that's where we're going to land. Those things all line up as sin, okay? But look at this verse in Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. Check this out. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others. Circle that phrase. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. So in addition to those sins that I've just mentioned regarding alcohol, I would conclude that it is also a sin to address this topic of alcohol without caring for those who truly are in bondage to it. In other words, we've been addressing this issue purely from a theological approach, and now I want to switch to a practical approach. And I I want to tell you that if we say, regardless of our stance on alcohol, that drunkenness is a sin, then as a church body, we'd better be serious about coming alongside folks and helping them live sober and effective lives for Jesus. In other words, we seek to help everyone understand and not misuse alcohol. And for many people, using alcohol appropriately means not using alcohol at all. And so the church comes alongside. Jesus is the one who brings freedom, freedom for alcohol consumption, but Jesus also brings freedom from alcoholism. And the Bible is clear. We're not to let anything master us. I know alcohol has the ability to do that. So what I want to do is I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, Scott's going to share with you his story, and you're going to see how Jesus has come in, impacted his life, and allowed Scott to live a life of freedom, life that he calls us all to live. So would you please welcome my friend Scott. Hi, good morning. Uh, My name is Scott Greenlaw, and I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and I do believe in victory over alcoholism. I had a storybook childhood, loving parents and a supportive older sister. From a young age, I had an intense determination and a drive to succeed. I excelled in sports, and growing up, I played football, basketball, baseball, and I ran track. I often played two age levels above myself. I received lots of praise for this, but I also drew a lot of teasing and bullying from the older kids. It really bothered me when someone didn't like me. I felt as though I needed to do something to gain their approval. 
We are the typical family that went to church on Sundays and put on a good show. I was taught that all our family problems needed to stay within our family and that we would figure out things in our, for ourselves. Our family's mantra was work hard to make your own way in life. There was no talk of relying on Jesus or on having an intimate relationship with him. And while that thinking may have been well-intentioned, I carried an intense burden to succeed. Because of my athletic talent, I was quite popular in high school. I ran with a popular clique, partied, and started drinking occasionally on the weekends. I made good grades and kept up my golden boy image. I even coached Issaquah High School Special Olympics team to its first gold medal in basketball. On the outside, my life seemed to be going exactly as my parents and I had planned. After high school, I enrolled at the University of Washington, walking on to the UW football team and earning a full scholarship. At the time, the Huskies were one of the best collegiate teams in the nation, and as a result, many critics questioned whether this kid from Issaquah would be able to rise to the skill level needed to play. I loved proving them wrong and ended up as a starting cornerback, covering the best receivers in the nation, and as, was part of three Pac-10 championships and a national championship team. I joined a fraternity, and I continued dating my high school sweetheart. I served as rush chairman and an executive board member at my fraternity. I even did some volunteer work. But I also began drinking more frequently and found that I was very good at it. I loved beer. When most people would have a couple of drinks and fall asleep, I was just getting started. I was really quite proud of my ability to literally drink most people under the table. Looking back, I now see that I was predisposed to alcoholism at my first drink. The fact that I wanted to stay up all night and drink showed that I metabolized alcohol differently than most people. I could drink an abnormal amount, and when I did, my personality changed dramatically. I became much more aggressive, I became grandiose, and my moral compass was lost. In my college days, I easily justified my level of drinking. I was a good student, a dedicated athlete, a loyal fraternity brother, and most importantly, it was college, right? Everyone drank, at least everyone I hung out with, then college ended. I thought the party was supposed to end, but now I was thrust into the real world. Up until then, my identity was solely based on what I did, not on who I was. Now I was no longer the big man on campus, but was on the bottom of the food chain in the business world. I had no spiritual foundation in my life. I tried the God thing for a while and brief briefly joined a Bible study, but that quickly took a back seat to what had always been the most important thing in my life, making a name for myself. I needed to reinvent who I was. I needed praise. I needed approval. And so I decided to go after that all-important ideal, the American dream. I married my high school sweetheart, got a job, bought a home, and the two dogs that go with it, and I continued drinking in the evenings and on weekends with my college buddies. As my career progressed, so did my abuse of alcohol. After five successful years in the mortgage industry, I took a leap of faith, and I started my own company. My success was a rapid rise to the top. My business earned many accolades and awards, and there were countless articles written about me. Everyone loved the, local, uh, the story of the local football hero who was now experiencing great success in business. Strange thing was, the more approval and praise I received, the more I needed. It was a desire that could never be satisfied. To, do, to those on the outside, I had it all. I had cars, houses, power, and money. But the stress of owning a company that had grown so large and so quickly was heavily weighing upon me. The only coping mechanism I knew was drinking, and so my alcoholism, my morals, and my life grew further and further out of control. Eventually, I left my wife and daughter and shortly thereafter went through a divorce. I started dating a new woman who I eventually married and no longer gave my business the attention it needed. As a result of my neglect, my company started to experience a real financial difficulties and in May 2006, I was forced to shut it down. 
I was devastated and in total shock. Having never experienced failure before, I now had to face one of the biggest failures of my life, the loss of, uh, loss of my company. God had blessed me with athletic success, business, prestige, and wealth. However, it was never enough, and my alcoholism tore down everything he had given me. Many of my friends and family turned their backs on me. The press slaughtered my reputation in the papers, and everything I had built was gone, including my character. By January of 2007, I was totally bankrupt and a broken man. Imagine me, the guy with a million friends. Now I had only my wife, my parents, my sister and brother-in-law in my corner. I was paralyzed with fear and total anxiety. The alcohol no longer was doing its job of numbing my pain because it was so great. I could see no hope. I was shamed and I was humiliated. The society had tossed me aside. I was a man who had put all his worth in worldly things and not in God. I'd pushed back God, I'd push God to the back of my priority list and gave him no thanks or glory for the success he had given me. I'd not been obedient, but instead followed my own sinful desires. But do you know how, do you know what is so great about our God? That at my lowest point, when no one else wanted me, God did. He lavished his grace on me. He saved me out of the pit. I finally asked God for help I so desperately needed. I repented and asked Jesus into my life. I dragged myself through the doors of Overlake Christian Church and for the first time, I found love, I found compassion, and I found true acceptance. I would listen to Mike's sermons and hang on to every word. It felt like he was talking just to me. I learned later that it was the Holy Spirit talking through him to me. I knew that this was where I belonged. I started going to a group here called Celebrate Recovery. It was a safe place where I could share my struggles with other people. I learned that Jesus loved me and my sins could be forgiven. Most importantly, I learned that shame and guilt were the tools of the devil to keep me a prisoner within my own mind. I started working through my issues and I learned that I become selfish and prideful. I started to learn how to put God's will of my own selfish desires and began to experience the incredible joy and excitement that comes when you do. Through what I've learned at Celebrate Recovery and Overlake Christian Church, I began to heal and became whole again. I'm now nearly 16 months sober and my life finally has real meaning and purpose today. Thank you. God has continued to bless me with miracle after miracle. I have two beautiful daughters. I have a strong and honest marriage and a new career. I serve on the leadership team for Celebrate Recovery here at the church, and I've been blessed to be part of two baptisms of two of my close friends whom I've helped sponsor. Today, I truly understand the gift of Christ in my life and that unexplainable peace and joy in everything I do. Jesus always wanted to be a part of my life. I just had to let him in. I never thought any of this was possible. I never thought that I would ever be able to quit drinking. But with, with Jesus both working in me and through me, not only was I able to quit, quit drinking, I'm finally living today. My life verse is Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things, no matter how long you've struggled, can be overcome if you make the decision to turn it over to the Christ's care and control. I'm living proof of that. Thank you for letting me share today. Scott, I'm so thankful for you. 
And I am absolutely thankful for your involvement in Celebrate Recovery. I, I love that Jesus doesn't waste a hurt, but that Jesus has invaded, that he has cleansed and strengthened and saved, and then now Jesus is using Scott uh, to have that same story unfold in others' lives. And it's just a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be all about. I want to tell you again that Jesus died to bring freedom. He, he died to bring freedom from bondage, freedom from slavery, however that manifests itself in this world. And friends, it, it might look like legalism. Jesus died to set us free from that. It might look like uh, alcoholism. He died to set us free from that. And as a church, we simply want to go after Jesus. We want to pursue the heart of Jesus. We want our entire lives to be glorifying him. And that's why I close with this verse from Romans 14, 7. It says, for we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be the Lord of both the living and the dead. Let's live in Jesus, living and dying to the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for Scott and for his courage to share with us today for the inspiration that he has shared about the power of your spirit moving about the freedom that's available in Christ. Jesus, my prayer is that you would use his courage to continue to inspire us, that we would be men and women who pursue wholeness, who pursue you, that we go hard after you. I wanna thank you for a program like Celebrate Recovery and all of our support groups and our lay counseling here at the church. And Jesus, I just want to take this moment and ask for you to prompt any heart here that if there is any man or any woman, any, any student who is still burdened by pornography, which we talked last week, or alcohol, which we're addressing today, that they would be prompted to take a step, that they, they would indicate on a card, that they would pick up the phone or write an email. But Lord, none of us have to live alone. None of us have to walk this journey in isolation. I ask that you would show us the church how to be your church, and how to come alongside folks, helping them walk with you appropriately toward your freedom. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.